I, I we briefly spoke about this in a in a phone call um, earlier in the week, but I had I'm having or I had for a period the same sort of week you had last time for the episode you uh, the episode last month because I was just watching bad films <laughs> by accident. Yes. And I just thought, and the thing is, the films I watched all pretty modern. They were all genuine, genuinely. Oh, that looks cool. Let's let's put it on. No, bad. Uh, some some were bad for quite fantastic reasons, and some were just bad. Um, did you watch something called the Ice Storm or Ice Storm or the Ice, ice Storm? The, the Ice Storm, good. The Ice Harvest, good. The Ice Road, not good. Ice Road, that's it. Yeah. Someone at work who shall remain nameless but i think you can guess who it is recommended a film to me today he said you've seen the ice road it's like no although i know brit's seen it (laughs) (laughs) there were some question marks i will tell you all about this oh my god i have to say that like there was I'll, I'll go into it later on, but I, I didn't watch the last 15 minutes and I, I didn't watch the last 15 minutes. And when I went on Wikipedia and read them, I just thought, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Correct decision, right? Yeah. So um, it's, uh, oh, yes. I, I'll have to, I can't wait to tell you about that. I can't wait. Uh, the Arkansas. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, um, now, the thing about this is, is that uh, my brother, whose name will be <laughs> today, <laughs> Niccolo Machiavelli, um, he he did this already, but he he went out and told me his route. Oh, okay, but I can't exactly remember what it was. But basically, what he did because it was going from Leslie Nielsen to Morvid Clark from St. Maud, which is fine. Um, but of course, his route was he got. He got to Richard Griffiths through Leslie Nielsen because Richard Griffiths is in every <laughs> British film ever made. So that's how he got to Morvith Clark. So I chose not to go down that route because I thought, well, he's kind of given me a tip there, hasn't he? So my route from Leslie Nielsen to Morvith Clark was Leslie Nielsen was in Naked Gun 33 and a third with James Earl Jones, who was in Coming to America with Eddie Murphy who was in The Golden Child with Charles Dance, who was in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies with Morris Mor- Clark. Wow, nice. Okay, that's that's four steps. Four. I, yeah. I, you I, may have done it quicker. I was going to say, I've actually got you, because he messaged me um, specifically. Oh. So your brother Nikolai Volkov messaged me, just so I could read this out, obviously, on, on, the, on the show. Um, so count the steps. I want to see if he's beaten you. Okay? So... <laughs> Morvith Clark is in the underrated Man Who Invented Christmas with Dan Stevens, who was in Beauty and the Beast with Emma Watson. Right. Richard Griffiths was in Harry Potter with Emma Watson, and also mm-hmm. in Naked Gun 2.5 with Dia Leslie. Right. How many steps was that? That was four. Oh, this one oh. left to be a tiebreaker. You'll have to both. <clears throat> yeah, it's a tricky one because there are such different generations. Um, but um, yeah, that was a good one. It's a good one. The tricky ones are the best. Like, you just the tri- trick is to find a movie that one of them was in with a massive ensemble cast, basically. I think that's why your your brother um, Maximo Hoffman mm. was hurtling towards the Harry Potter films because apparently yes. they have every British actor imaginable in them. Yes, <clears throat> even Clive Dunn, who I spewed on, by the way, when I was one. Oh, that rhymed as well. Boom. You can tell I wrote songs. 
You vomited on Clive Dunn when you were one. Yeah, uh, or like maybe two. Um, I, his daughter owns or owned uh, a bar, or a restaurant in Portugal, and my, my parents took me there. And they were, he was like, oh, hold on. his father was visiting. He was like, oh, <laughs> take that, Clive. <laughs> and, and then uh, I turned around and John Le Magiré was there and I shit in his mouth. Uh, you you had to embellish the story, didn't you? <laughs> I had to take it that, that one. Just, uh, <laughs> I did struggle to remember John Lee Majurier's name then. I'm not going to lie to you, but it it, it was there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I we haven't been sponsored this week. Sponsorship has been really drying up. I don't know if I've maybe my internet's been down or something. I, I don't know. Um, but I did the manage entire it, time <clears throat> because because I've had some time. Not you know, I haven't been dealing with the sponsorships. I did have a bit of time to, you know, I've got the um, Brits random film generator machine that I Ooh. hand built. Well, I was tinkering around with another machine I've had and I've, I've created. Um, it's it's a it's a machine that generates possible taglines for movies. <laughs> so I'm just going to press the button now and and just see, you know, what it comes up with, what kind of again, if there's any um young budding filmmakers out there and you know you can watch another episode listen to another episode if you want to get a title idea to, to sort of run off and now we're also doubling it down on that and giving you a tagline to work with you know so let me just let me just give it a kick because the script will light yourself in a minute Half man, half machine, half finished, half cut. Half man, half machine, half finished, half cut. <coughs> so I suppose you'd, it would be like a, you'd, so it'd be almost like a, like a RoboCop who isn't complete but also a bit drunk. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. This is, I'm imagining this would be a late 80s comedy of some sort. Almost, oh, it could be like a spoof of Robocop, couldn't it? It could be so hilarious because it's just an incompetent Robocop bumbling around the place, <laughs> always could, drinking, like yeah, a precursor to Bender from Futurama or something. Or, or yeah, or maybe a spoof, like a spoof of Robocop. Um, um, called I don't know like Robo clocking it back or something, but he's he's like half man up machine and he's all like bits like, like he hasn't got, got like the, the breastplate on and like you know like half his head still visible and stuff, but also what they've done is the, one of the scientists instead of putting like diesel or blood in him it's like oh no I've I've accidentally put in a load of breakers lager into his bloodstream. <laughs> so he's just constantly battered, and and because it's just like you know like going through the the filters and the machinery to clean, and pump, it's like he's just in a constant state of bemused drunkenness. But then because they put so much money into building him, they have to send him out to enforce the law anyway. Yeah, and but he's is he's not like an amusing, like slapstick drunk. He's just really introspective, sad drunk. Or, he just or, gets really disillusioned by the crime. Or at, that, community. at that peak where um, you know it's the the the, the pin pinnacle of the drunkenness where it takes a downturn. So the whole film is people sort of talking around him saying, "Come on, you know, not not RoboCop, get out there." And he's just got like half of the car door open, and there's like a, a smashed window burglary going on, and he's just trying to get up and going, "Oh, oh, 
And you know, you know as well, it wouldn't be like a, a decent costume. It'd literally just be a guy painted silver. <laughs> like Pepsi Man. Yeah. Weeping one. Oil. Um, well, oh my God, that would be the sequel, wouldn't it? That because that would be Weeping Oil would be the the sequel to whatever this film is called, and and the, the listeners should send in a title to the men who talk at Outlook dot com because then the sequel would be like you know like Ro- not Robocop two Weeping Oil, and it would be when he's reflecting on what the booze caused him to do in the first film. So that's when it gets really introspective, and it's not him struggling to get out of a car without being sick. It's him looking out of a window going, "Oh God." <laughs> oh god much like billy drago in um what was that film he was in called the masters of horror it in it was banned everywhere i think apart from in clearlich vale it was called it was in in print there was a uh, an episode of masters of horror done by um i always want to say kimmy raikkonen but it's what's his name takashi miike oh yes takashi miike um, he is, uh, yeah, he he did this episode, an hour-long episode in this Masters of Horror thing, and when he sent it off to them, they said, we can't show that. That's buzzing, that is. And it's basically Billy Drago going, oh, God, in feudal Japan. It's fantastic. Um, oh, on with the show. <laughs> um, I've got eight films. I've probably got more from the last episode kicking around, but to be honest... There was probably a reason I left them to last and didn't get to them. So maybe next time I'll, I'll dig up my yellowed scrap of paper. Um, how many have you got this time? Uh, I've probably got about eight or nine, but I'm several of them are two minutes. Yeah. Because there are some key ones I need to speak at length about. Okay, then. Um, I'll, I'll, I've talked for a little bit, so I'll, uh, I'll let you kick off. Okay. Well, this one is one I, I watched ages ago, and I I just haven't bothered to <laughs> mention it up until now. Um, it is The Wolfman from 2010. Oh, right. Um, which I, is... I, w- I watched this at the time, and I, and I, I, I mean, I may very well, I don't know what you're about to say, but I very well may have not been in the right frame of mind, but I remember being incredibly bored. <laughs> Yes, that would I can imagine that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. um, it's a yeah. So it's 2010, directed by uh, Joe Johnston. Johnston. Um, it was one of several failed attempts to modernise the Universal Monsters franchise, um, which frankly faltered until The Invisible Man, the very good Invisible Man. Um, so anyway, you it's um. The, you skipped over the mummy there with Tom Cruise. I did. I did. It's the oh. first bad Tom Cruise movie. Wow. Which is pity. Um, so, yeah, this is The Wolfman. And it, it's clearly going for a Sleepy Hollow kind of vibe um, with it's Benicio Del Toro rocks up in town, set in like, Victorian times. He, he rocks up in town to investigate a violent murder. There are rumours of mythical creatures. Uh, and... It, it almost matches Tim Burton's film in terms of production design and locations and lighting. So there's superficial stuff, but in terms of the script and incident and, and character and tone, it's just not even close. Um, and Benicio del Toro just doesn't have Depp's, uh, Johnny Depp's sort of playful irony. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have that arch aspect to him. He's just a bit of a, frowning old bore um emily blunt 
plays Benicio del Toro's brother's hot grieving widow. Anthony Hopkins plays the father. Uh, Benicio del Toro has some serious mum hair. It's like a bowl cut. <laughs> I don't know what is going on. Anyway, so obviously Benicio del Toro, he, he's he's bitten whilst in, in, in defending this gypsy camp. He survives, but now he's a werewolf. Hugo Weaving arrives from Scotland Yard and, starts, <laughs> and he, inst- he instantly starts suspecting Benicio del Toro being the killer, even though there were countless witnesses in the events at the gypsy camp. So I don't know where he's getting that from. There's this whole subplot about these Christian nutters out to slay Benicio del Toro because he's apparently touched by Satan. So you get the usual religious fanatic cliches about the devil and purity and all that. Benicio del Toro, he is, um, or let's just call him Benny. Um, he's caught and he's sent to a, a, a mental asylum. Uh, and it's his homicidal nature is treated as delusional psychosis. And then we get this whole dumb backstory about his childhood. And that's the point where my interest just fell off a cliff completely, to be honest. Um I mean, actually, most of the script, to be fair, is people describing their backstory, uh, combined with really annoyingly edited flashbacks. Um, I can really see why you found this film boring, to be honest. Um, How long is it? For, I remember it being feeling long. It felt long. I'm not sure it's... It's probably around two hours. I don't think it's especially long, but it's just dull. I think it's dull because it's so just predictable. It's so rote. You know, it's just so... It feels like it's been written by committee. One thing I will say is that it is surprisingly gory. There's like, it's properly disgusting sometimes. There's loads of gouging and dismemberment and slashing. And um, yeah, because I I quite like the gore scenes. They're actually quite comic, quite kind of over the top and comic booky. And I think it's Joe Johnston is, he's the guy who made. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Jumanji, and Jurassic Park Three. So he's got, he has got that kind of monster movie kind of silly, pulpy um, sensibility about him. Um, Rick Baker uh, did the makeup, uh, and he won an Oscar, I believe. But obviously, the transformations and running around—they're all CG. Mm. It's yeah it's not terrible but it's just a bit it's flashy and it doesn't have any visceral impact obviously there's zero chemistry between benny and emily blunt um just just really predictable flirting um like he teaches her to skip stones across a lake so of course he has to nestle in behind her uh she cleans his wounds as they do um i don't know it's just weird seeing emily blunt in such a prissy passive damsel role you know after seeing her as like the full metal bitch and the unbreakable mum in a quiet place you're like this doesn't seem like her and looper as well of course you you want her to be holding a shotgun you don't want her to be i don't know cleaning up benicia del toro's wounds um yeah, so it just seems to be it, it, like the whole cliché nature of it. It just seems to be a story about innate male rage and the role of the woman being to pacify the rage and civilise the man, which is, of course, a very old-fashioned idea, and they couldn't be bothered to update it. Um, they could update the special effects and the production values, but they couldn't be asked with 
actually updating that central kind of message. So, um, yeah, it's um, it was in production for years, apparently. Variety of directors, variety of crew, had a bunch of reshoots. And as usual, the calamity of such a production just manifests itself as um, something deeply middle of the road. You it's very rare that they, they are total disasters because so much money in it, they have to rescue it in some way. So they make it as utterly generic as possible. Um, we look at you, Marvel. I think, <laughs> yes. I, yeah, I think as well, you go about the special effects. I couldn't remember because I did watch it when it came out in 2010, if it was practical or CG, but I do remember the, the effects being sort of cuddly berry. I mean, when mm. I, I love out of all the sort of classic monsters, I love werewolves because I've always found them terrifying, and I've got a genuine, serious discomfort with back jointed knees. I find them like really horrendous. Thanks, Tim Curry and Legend. <laughs> and and I, and when I see a werewolf, I want it to be a hulking, drooling, terrifying, red eyed, like well lit beast. I don't want it to be sort of a like a, a dude who hasn't had a shave for a bit and hasn't got any product in his hair. Um, so. I think that's what mm-hmm. lost me because I was I wanted something more visceral and it was a bit cuddly bit. Yeah, the, the CG's got that kind of soft, bubbly feel to it that just cannot recapture. It, it's, that's what I mean by not visceral, you know? Yeah. It just doesn't, it, it looks too, yeah, soft we, and squishy. We'll, we'll return to CG when we talk about the ice road. Okay. Are we going to talk about Saint Maud today? Uh, we can talk. Yeah, because I know yeah. you. I've got one. The high women that you've seen, and I know you've seen Saint Maud, and I just, I just, I just wanted you to chat about it for a bit to get your because I really enjoyed it, and I know you've seen it. Um, so yeah, I quick, really enjoyed it too. Yes. Quick, right, that's Saint Maud then. Um, <laughs> no, no, go on, uh, Carol. Um, yes, I, I, I liked it a lot. It's um, I. I had a, I mean, you described what it's kind of about last week. It's a pretty simple plot, really. It's just a nurse looking after, um, looking after someone who needs help, basically an older lady, um, who needs help. Um, sort of palliative care, really. Um, but this kindly nurse turns out that she has this very strong faith, shall we say, and she believes that she can save this older lady's soul. Um, but it turns out that it's quite, uh, it's a slightly more malevolent <laughs> motivation than first meets the eye. And it gets very dark and it's, it's just a dark psychological horror really, which becomes ambiguously supernatural towards the end, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I, but I really liked it. I've got a really strong performances. It's one of those films where you'll probably look on Amazon and see a bunch of one star reviews of people saying it's boring which usually means it's really good, uh, unless they're talking about Michelangelo and Tonioni, in which case it just is boring. So, but in this case, they're wrong. It's not boring. It's really gripping and compelling. Uh, yeah, and it's just a really neat film, beautifully made, nice seventies feel. Did you see what I mean about, um, or did you agree rather with when I said that there was an an unreadability to a performance as opposed to a blankness? Yes. I, and I thought that was very clever because it really makes it hard to read her kind of motivations. In a way, it's just a spoiler even saying that she, her motivations do become malevolent. 
because actually what's really clever about it is it's almost taking quite a classic kind of like you'd expect it to be a story about this nice naive young woman going to help out this old-ish crone and you know and finding that her in her naivety she's just wandered into like this horrendous circle of hell but actually it's like she is bringing hell with her and it's it's really really quite disturbing in a very subtle way there are no jump scares or any nonsense like that it's just really uncomfortable like there's the moments where i which i found really really creepy where she'll have these kind of moments of rapture and start almost crying out sort of sort of like she's in agony but also orgasmically at the same time and she'll scream out and it's like her it's they must do something really subtle they must subtly augment it or something because she'll she'll be screaming out and it's like her eyes go black and it's like her mouth just opens a little bit too wide it's really creepy so it's that kind of horror movie where it's very unsettling so i enjoyed that a lot I watched. You've already covered this. Um, the Highwayman. Um, I Good. watched this because I, 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 and yeah, just I remember you saying that it was okay, effectively, and I mm. sort of echo. I think I liked it slightly more than you did because I really like um, Kevin Costner and Harrelson as as they get older. I find them to be just more interesting. And yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar, overly familiar with the story of Bonnie and Clyde, and I did like how this was quite a quiet film, and it was just more about the the pretty landscapes and them driving around and the awkward banter between them. I didn't get, I didn't get the sense that they were, they were made out to be these real, um, I suppose it's the point of the film that that meant to be like real hard asses. And I didn't get that because it's not a spoiler to say at the end of the film, it just boils down to them jumping out of a bush and shooting the shit out of the car. So (laughs) it's like all this planning and them saying, Oh, you know, that attract them down and, and how he's a great detective. And really, they just say, well, you know, there's three of these convicts left. Um, they haven't gone to the other two's house, so they've probably gone to the third one's house, and that's it. Um, yes. But it's, it's made out that it's actually really clever, and then they just jump out of a bush and, bush and shoot them. Um, so Yeah, I didn't get the sense that they were clever, certainly. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, I got the sense that they were pretty ballsy, but you know, nothing else other than that, yeah. And I, I did like the scene where, obviously, the, the, the past is sort of, the high women's past is really mythologised, and the scene where Woody Harrelson actually explains what happens that night that they killed over 50 men, and it's just, it's like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I did find that really, really nicely understated, and just sort of, it completely just dispels. You can understand why he wrestles with what he does and how it just dispels the mythology that does built up around them. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I think I it's think... got a bit of um, Western quality in that regard, sort of like um, what do they call them? Like a revisionist Western type thing, you know, like Unforgiven or something, where it's like there's myths about about this, you know, famous these famous gunslingers and that. Um, and yet the reality is much more grubby and actually just much more mundane. Yeah, and, and, and mostly depressing. Um, yes. So yeah, so yeah, I, you know, I, I enjoyed that. I'd, I'd say it's a, a middle middle tier film. Yeah. So uh, yeah, have you got a film that you've got? Have we, any other two minutes or are we going to go into the, the nitty gritties? Um, well, I've got a two minute here. Um, it's do. a film called Beneath, which is on Netflix. I don't know whether you've seen this. It's a Larry Fessenden film, um, monster movie from 2013. 
Um, and it's about a group of teenagers who've just finished high school and they take out a boat on a lake and they're attacked by a big fish. It's literally it. That's the story. Uh, on the plus side, there's some good chemistry between the teenagers. They actually seem to know and like each other, unlike many films in this genre. Um, uh, there's uh, there's an amusingly creepy cameo from Mark Margulis, Margali, uh, Darren Aronofsky favorite. You'd know his face if you look it up. Um, so one of the kids is filming stuff, so there is an element of found footage, but the film isn't bound to it, thankfully. So. Don't have to worry too much about that. I like the fact that the fish is almost entirely puppetry, although we do see too much of it and it's not that good a puppet. Um, and for a film that's called Beneath, the fish, which is kind of like a big catfish, does spend a lot of time loitering on the surface. Doesn't really spend a lot of time under the water. Anyway, it's not a good film. It, as soon as the first attack happens, it just descends into the usual bickering and sarcastic humour and massive jumping to conclusions like one of them says oh it senses blood how does he know that and you know the predictable power struggles um performances are perfunctory at best i would say um the script is bad like someone actually says to someone else who made you president of the boat and, and someone else says Oh, haven't you seen Shark Attack 3D? Again, we'll get back to scripts when we talk about yes. the Ice Road. Um, it's, it is a real pity because the actual central concept isn't that bad. Like, because what it comes down to is all the people turning on each other and they're basically voting who will go into the water and become a distraction so the others can get to shore. Um, but the script just doesn't have any intelligence or character nuance and the ending is utterly stupid. It, it really isn't worth it, even for fans of cheap monster movies. It just feels like Larry Fessenden on autopilot. Mark Margulies, by the way, um, yeah. just when you were talking, then I just clicked on him and I saw his face and thought, yes, you are Ace Ventura's landlord. <laughs> that's just chicken dance. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's, what a name, Mr. Chicken Dance. <laughs> uh, um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think I have seen Beneath, and tellingly, I, I, I do like Larry Fessenden, and when he's in a film, I think he elevates it. But I, I think with, with that, I remember watching it, and and I and I have totally forgotten it. Um, I I have seen it definitely. Um, mm -hmm. so. I'll have a look at it to refresh my, my mind about the end, refresh my memory, sorry, about the ending, but I don't think I'm going to watch it again. Um, I've got a film that you shouldn't watch, um, okay. and, and that is Max Payne from 2008. Jeez. I have been trying to watch this film probably since 2008. Um, I, I, I remember playing the first two games quite late, um, and then I watched played the third game. I thought, oh, that film, I've got to watch that bloody film. And, and I bought it on DVD, and then we moved flat, and I found it when we were moving. I thought I'm never going to watch that, right? I, you know, I'll give it away. And now I finally watched it, and it has not been worth a 13-year wait. Um, for anyone familiar with the story of the games, um, the story is basically Max Payne is a detective whose uh, wife and young baby have died uh, in a, in a what seems to be a, a 
a robbery, a botch robbery, um, and he saw the person who did it jump out of a window, and he's been hunting him ever since. And the game takes on. There's a lot of. Um, I guess is it, is it Norse mythology with like Aesir, the Aesir corporation. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is Norse, isn't it? Yeah, Valkyries and so on. Um, and it's all about this drug uh, that is in the game gives people sort of the, this this invulnerability almost and makes them believe that they're immortal, which comes in is a part of the film I will mention again. And the 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 film sort of follows the plot. Uh, it has the same characters and it follows the same basic plot, but the 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 problem is as of Max, um, Max being played by Mark Wahlberg, trying to get this retribution is he does not have the range. He doesn't have any range in this regard. No. Of when I was watching the film, he is a man who is driven by this one event, this one incredibly awful event, and he is supposed to be. He is portrayed in the film by other characters who reference him as this, like a very dangerous man on the edge. But he just comes across as a petulant teenager, and it, it he's wearing like moody black leather jackets. He's always got a slight scowl. He looks young, and he's often shorter than everyone else, and so he just he just comes across as just someone who's just you know like um maybe got a mild gambling problem, or like he's walking around and as he's talking to people, he's trying to do some complex fractions in his head. It doesn't come across as someone who's like lost everything and is is either totally burned out or really driven. Yeah. And that is that tent pole of the whole film. It just collapses around that. Um, yeah. it's, there are characters in the film that are obviously they're just like Mila Kunis's character as Mona Sachs. She plays a much more prominent role in the game, but she's just in the film to sort of, I guess, just name check for the fans of the game. Um, the CG mm. is is okay, but the main problem I had with it was when people in this the whole film is based around this drug that drives people to believe they're immortal and they when they take it they see it's almost like the world is on fire it's constantly snowing and the snow is sort of like um uh, sparks and they see this swirling vortex and all these valkyries above them but it's pretty unclear as to like like the the benefits of it really because everyone who takes it it just they just seem to be in this sort of like rage filled borderline terror state so I don't, mm. I don't see why that would be addictive. There's a bit where he takes the drug after falling into the, I guess it's the Hudson River, and he's freezing to death, and he takes two vials of this drug, and it's just, he's just shouting, but it looks really awkward. It looks like he's almost about to burst into laughter at how ridiculous he looks. He's just sort of walking around grunting and like wide-eyed looking at the sky, almost like a, a kind of wrestler's performance, if you mm. know what I mean. Yeah, and it just, yeah. it's just really awkward. Oh, and, really? So really quite melodramatic then. Yeah. And yeah. and there's the... So it's pretty boring. It's pretty flat. It's it's not interesting. It's it's drab without having character. And everything is quite hammy. But it plays itself too straight to be... To sort of go along with it as a bit of a fun thrill ride. And there's a guy in the film. I'm not sure who the actor, the actor is. Um... But Donald Rogue? <laughs> no, Bo Bridges? No, yeah. it is. Is it? No, it's not him. He's not Chris O'Donnell. What's the guy's name? Anyway, it's a buff Chris guy. Chris O'Donnell I, in it, did you say? Yeah, Chris O'Donnell's yeah. in it. I don't think I've seen that man since Batman Forever, or Batman and Robin, whatever it was. I'm going to know if Tardo's in it as well. Why wouldn't you? I don't, don't remember him being in it. Um, I need to look at the cast because I need to. I need to find out this guy's name because. 
he is sorry about this this is deeply unprofessional of me i know his face when i see it he's a is this him oh i can't find him anyway there's the main sort of henchman who you see you know taking this drug and hack and he's an ex special forces guy and he's hacking off people's heads and is you know played as completely insane and it's the whole thing is this drug that's sweeping the streets made by this ACA corporation it is it, it, you know it, it makes you feel completely empowered and you, you know you when it when it cuts to why this drug exists it's a failed military experiment and and they say oh the drug you know it basically then they literally say these words the drug when you take it it makes you immortal these people are just immortal and they have no fear mm. so well, you see this shots of this guy hacking people to bits with a machete and him standing on a rooftop and his skin literally steaming in the snow because he's so full of fury and he's topless and completely buff. And then the end of the film, he's in his, this sort of little room and he gets shot once in the chest and instantly drops dead without any fanfare. <laughs> so I thought, well, what what is this drug for then? You've said that it makes you mortal, but it, it demonstrably doesn't. It just turns you into someone who looks up and laughs at the sky and gets a temperature. So <laughs> it's another, it's another thing the film falls down on. It feels like, um, it feels like multiple iterations of a script um, that people are constantly improving on, but not reading back through it to make sure it all sort of lined up with itself. Um, mm. And they have the absolute cheek at the end to really nod on a sequel and which makes it even sillier now because you think this is terrible. This is a terrible empty film. Why would you think there's going to be a sequel? Well, I think this had a pretty rough production history as well. I remember being in oh, really? production for years and years. Yeah. Um, well, because the games were, well, they must have been early 2000s. 2001. 2001 was the first game. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Um... <laughs> uh, and and the, obviously, the, and another little thing, this more obviously one for the gamers, but the game made famous bullet time, that kind of matrix yes. bullet time and the slow motion jumps, which was amazingly mm. addictive and still is perfect in games, even up to the, to the third one. But in this film, the only time they use bullet time or slow motion is like when he's just turning his head slightly and or <laughs> at like really, really bland like moments. Games. And you think, what? <laughs> like you, you at least throw in some cool stunt work or something. But no, it's just really flat. And, and, I, and I've, I'm struggling to remember it now, which is always a bad sign. John Moore, the director, you know what he did next? No. A Good Day to Die Hard. Which is genuinely one of the worst films I've ever seen. Uh, I, I've never seen it. I, after four, I thought oh, I think I'm going to kind of bail out now. I don't. I don't feel like I need to see a fifth one. Even though Jay Courtney's in the fifth one, isn't he? He is. That's it. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> I, he's in it. Yes. Yeah. I, he's not the problem with the film, but yeah. It's got a whole host of other issues. Um, right, so don't watch Max Payne then. Maybe no. I'll just wait 13 years and then watch it then. <laughs> um, yeah, because I remember liking the games. But yeah, well, this was not a good period. The 2000s was not a good period for video game adaptations. No, certainly not. Let's Unless do... you were a Yui Ball. Naturally. <laughs> Well, at least he had the right idea. Don't spend much. Don't spend much and get Till Schweiger in. Keep your budget and expectations low. (laughs) Um, 
What channel is channel? What um, service? <laughs> you know it was on Amazon Prime. You know it was on Amazon Prime. Well, I'm going to stick with Netflix and talk about Deep Impact. Oh, nice. Um, uh, which is a asteroid disaster thriller from 1998. It's a very strange film, this. Um, it's kind of the sober cousin to Armageddon, which I think came out the same year. Mm-hmm. This is Armageddon was obviously Michael Bay, like big smash bang extravaganza. This Deep Impact is more of a kind of weighty drama than an action movie. Which is quite unusual for the period when you think about it, because he had like Godzilla, Independence Day, well, and Armageddon and all that. Um, And also, within the first five minutes, you see someone booting up a dial-up modem, saving (laughs) something onto a floppy disk. Brilliant. Not even a zip. Not even a zip disk to impress the girls. (laughs) This uh, it focuses mostly on, uh, first of all, on Tia Leone, who's um, a one, uh, who's ambitious reporter. who basically uncovers um, this cover-up in the government that they know something that's going on, uh, some big thing which they're not telling the world. Um, And she kind of forces Morgan Freeman, president, to reveal what it is. And she reveals that there's a big asteroid approaching Earth and it's definitely going to smash into us. Um, So... They, much like Armageddon, they send a team to take down the comet. The team including, of course, John Favreau and Robert Duvall. Good. Um, <laughs> the comet landing sequence is quite well staged. It's quite tense and exciting. Um, it's not really a spoiler to say it doesn't go according... This part does not go according to plan and the extinction level event is back on. Um, there's also this whole kind of uh, concurrent plot about um, Elijah Wood who plays a he plays this kid who kind of wins a place um, in the this survival exodus because basically because this asteroid has come towards Earth they do this big lottery so basically people can go into the caves under the ground and they'll be the lucky ones sort of thing he's one of them so it's all about his struggles with He's trying to get his girlfriend's family under there and stuff. So there's all that. So uh, I quite like this film. I remember finding mm. it boring when I was a kid, but then well, when I was a teenager. But I um, I guess I was expecting something a bit different, but I quite like it. It's um, got a convincing sense of doom and gravity. And there's obviously got Morgan Freeman. That always helps to bring gravity. But um, you do get a really good sense of it being a genuine inevitable global catastrophe and Tia Leone was apparently pinpointed for the poorness of her performance but I think she's pretty good I mean she's portraying this ambitious woman promoted to the limelight in these terrible circumstances so she looks pretty shell-shocked I think she's all right um this yeah it's sort of dated in some ways like i mentioned the dial-up modem and all that stuff and what's quite sort of quaint about it is that the whole world is basically fixed on a single channel um for their kind of news about this situation and i just think imagine what it would be like today you know, like, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> the only trustworthy channel um but nowadays of course it would all be all over the internet and it'd be conspiracy theories and all this kind of stuff but there's something a bit I found there's something quite nice and nostalgic about it in a way that there's this um, sort of harking back to a time when humanity could be focused on a single 
shared narrative, if you see what I mean. Um, there's two really, really nice performances from Robert Duvall and Vanessa Redgrave, particularly. Um, and it does get a bit sentimental towards the end, but I think it earns its sentimentality because it has well-drawn characters and weighty drama and this sense of uh, this oppressive sense of doom that never goes away and and the kind of closer it gets you realize it's just not <laughs> they like they're not going to get away away with this not everyone's going to get away with this and so really it's just about people coping with annihilation really which is that's why it's an unusual film that's why it's a strange film because it's like a mainstream hollywood movie about people coping with just inevitable death um which does mean that the last hour of the film is essentially just people saying goodbye to each other but um but in a but in a well-acted way so i quite liked it and it is taking this sort of standard disaster template and just approaching it from a different angle really a bit more thoughtful a bit more existential you shouldn't watch it if you're looking for roland emmerich style big thrills um but as a character drama i think it's pretty yeah pretty gripping really i liked it is is the title a play on words as to the deep impact emotionally the film will have yes yeah i did wonder that <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's a bit yeah it's a bit sort of drawing attention to itself a little bit like oh this one's deep it's like no just it's it's a good film but you don't need to you don't need to say that tia leone but um dropped uh, it reminded me that the plot of that reminded me of greenland um that recent film with i think it was gerard butler in it mm. um it seems very similar okay. um and um which is on amazon prime i want to say but yeah tia leone i remember watching her in the family man with nicholas cage which is a film weirdly i watched a lot. I don't know why. In in the early two thousands, I watched it. I would say a good six or seven times. And Andrea Leone, and I, yeah, she dropped off the map, didn't she? A bit. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's yeah, because she's in some pretty big movies. She was in Jurassic Park three, wasn't she? Bad Boys. She was in Jurassic Park three as William H Macy's wife. <sighs> <laughs> and, and he, there's so many scenes in that film where they're driving along and he looks at her and says you would not fancy <laughs> me also William H. Macy in The Cooler where yes Maria Bella was all over him even though he plays someone one... who is completely brassic what was the one we watched where it was just like one guy's name the one that was David the David Mamet one Oh, um, it's like Edward or something. Uh, Edmund. Edmund. Edmund, yeah. And in that, who's it's complete burner? I can't remember who it is. Um, oh, wasn't it someone? It was like Thor, not Thor Birch. Who was no, it? It was the one. It was the one from Save the Last. Uh, from Born. Julius Julius Styles. Styles, yeah, yeah. It's what I mean. I know that was a bit fanciful, but. It, this has to stop. Yeah, but bearing in mind that Julia Stiles are in that film, like a relatively pleasant woman, who's just like you know a tired waitress at the end of a shift, falls for him just because he turns up to him and he's really abusive and covered in blood. Massively homophobic. Yeah, <laughs> I got come back to mind. Get the coffee on. Um. So okay, deep in that. Oh, okay, right. Well, I've yeah, seen Green Greenland, good. so I don't know if I need to watch it really because it sounded very much the same thing. Um. I'm going to talk about the ice road now because we've we've hinted at it a few times. Mm. 
this I watched this a couple of days ago, and I sat down with with Faye and, and uh, usually when I say oh, do you want to choose a film, she will choose a horror film or like a or like a thriller. And I said, and but she does like Liam Neeson, and we've seen a few films. He's he's kind of a safe pair of hands, isn't he? Even when you watch stuff like Honest Thief, it's Liam Neeson, and you know you're just have a bit of silly fun. Yes. So we chose the Australia because I had a, not that I watched the, the, the Savalas, but. I had I had a, a memory of people talking about this thing called the Ice Road Truckers, and it was and I so I know what the Ice Road refers to in in Canada those really dangerous thin lakes that they drive along to deliver haulage to to wherever, and they're incredibly dangerous jobs. So when I put this on, um, I it's called the Ice Road, but on the on the cover it says Ice Road. By the way, I was expecting. Um, um, you know, a men against nature sort of thing, where they would say, "Right, we've got to get from here to here, and nature is going to try and stop us." And I was really in the mood for that. Um, mm-hmm. This film <laughs> does not do that. So the plot is <clears throat> that. Let me just check the director, Jonathan Hensley. Is it? What else has he done? He did Terminator Three, didn't he? Did he? Uh, no. Oh, I'm on. He wrote Die Hard with a Vengeance. He wrote Jumanji, wrote The Saint, wrote Armageddon, directed 2004's The Punisher, <laughs> and then the Welcome to the Jungle. Um, oh, and wrote Next as well, that Nicolas Cage film, um, which a friend who cannot be named will call him Hernando Montiguez, uh, like that film. So the, the Kill the Irishman was Jonathan Ensley's last film. No idea what that is. But yeah, this is the first film in 10 years. So it's not, he's, I kind of know some of his stuff. This could easily have been directed by a first time director. So the plot is that he wrote this as well. There's really no, there's really no excuse. In fact, this film is so bad that I don't believe he wrote those other films by himself. I'm just going to say it. Jonathan um, Mostow was Terminator 3. <laughs> um, the film is that Liam, the story, sorry, is that Liam Neeson um, has a brother called Gertie. He's called Mike McCann, his brother Gertie McCann. They are employed by a trucking company, and his brother Gertie is, has got, he's had some sort of, served in Iraq and has got some sort of, um, they, they say it's PTSD, but it came across to me as sort of a learning difficulty and aphasia. So he's got problems with, with words. Um, so because of Gertie, he gets kicked out of jobs because people bully him and call him names, and he ends up punching people in the face. And they're kind of, they're both getting on a bit, and they just, they both just want to settle down, but his brother is a bit of a weight to him. Uh, it cuts then to uh, a well, uh, sorry, well, a, a mine, I think it's a silver mine somewhere in, in northern Canada, and there's a, an explosion, and 26 miners get locked in, and they need these things called wellheads, which weigh about 30 tons, and they can't be dropped in by helicopter because of the weight of them, so they need to be yeah. driven by trucks across this ice road. And, okay. And you need, they get Liam Neeson and his brother in one, because his brother's a mechanic. They get, and the other one, the 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 guy who owns the firm, I think his name is like Dave Goldenrod, is um, <laughs> played by Lawrence Fishburne. And this is an and Lawrence Fishburne, so you know who was going through that ice first. And <laughs> and then, um, and, and there's a, a girl played by Amber Midthunder, quite a name. I can't remember. I've seen her in something else, but I, I can't remember. Um, uh, what she was in. 
so that's the the main film is is that this they they get in these three big trucks and you know they've got to get to this uh, one of them because they assume a few of them are going to die on the way. I've mm. got to get to this wellhead so they can put this part in that will then free the miners. The miners. Okay, this sounds like a load of dudes in trucks versus the elements. Sounds yeah, perfect. Something like a convoy or sorcerer, something like that. Yes, uh, I was going to. I will talk more about sorcerer, but yes, go on. <laughs> Good. So I was buying up for this, but um, oh yeah, and also the in, in the mine because the oxygen's running out and some people are wounded. There's this stupid um, thing where they say, "Oh, maybe we should just kill off some people." Uh, and then we'd have enough oxygen to live. Uh, and you're like, and and the guy who is the sort of head miner is Colt McC- Holt McCallany. And I swear to God, if I was down that mine with Holt McCallany, the first thing I would do is say, "Oh, I'm fainting! Quick, kiss me passionately, Holt McCallany, in the dark." But um, yeah, so that's going on. There's this stupid, oh, you know, there's obviously the bad guy down the mine who's saying oh, we should just kill them; they're gonna die anyway. And then Holt McCallany's saying, "Don't be a knob." And then above ground. The head of the mining company is none other than Matt Salinger. That's right. <laughs> Star of Albert Pian's 1990 Captain America. I was over the moon when his name came up. Over the moon. <laughs> he's such a handsome older man. as well. He's quite thin, but he's just got these really piercing eyes, perfect teeth, and sweat back grey hair was all over. After Holt, he'd be giving me the kiss of life. Yeah, how old um, is he now? Um, that's, he must be. He looked like he was well into his sixties. I've got him here. Actually, he is sixty-one. Yes, he's, he's still pretty young. He he should have been a bigger star. Yeah, yeah, he's got gravitas in this. So I am going to be a little bit spoilertastic with this um, because it real the film doesn't deserve people to watch it. The siege is awful. Um, so what happens is they say that there's a, there's a guy who goes along with them, uh, played by I think his name's Marcus Thomas. And he's supposed to be um, an insurance man. So he's there because everything's obviously the trucks are insured. There's a high risk of failure. So he's there to make sure that you know, everything goes as well as it can and make sure that if the insurance pays out, then it's all above board. Um, the second the second they leave and they start driving, it's very uh, it's clear that one of them is, is kind of a bit of a tinker and has sabotaged Lawrence Fishman's truck. And he... And it turns out to be this insurance salesman who is just this awful bad guy. Um, the problem with the film is that it's the CG is bad, and the 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 things they come up against aren't aren't man versus nature. It's just goodies versus baddies. So mm. you know, Lawrence Fishman's truck breaks down and starts to sink in the ice, which would really mean nothing if he didn't get his foot caught in this sort of wound steel nylon cable and his foot breaks. And I swear to God, as he's getting dragged to his icy death, he is beaming thinking, right, I'm out of this fucking film. Good. <laughs> That's it. I was only there for 10 minutes. Um, yeah. And then the film just moves on with awful CG, awful dialogue. There's a scene where um, Liam Neeson is talking to his brother in the cab. And when they realize this insurance guy is obviously just trying to, to kill them because he, for some reason he wants, he wants the miners to die and for it to fail. Um, and Liam Neeson says, right, that's it. Now I'm angry. This isn't about the money. I know, I know he's the bad guy. And it's what, what were you saying these words and who too? We're watching the film. We know what's going on. Um, and it's just, it's just really sort of moustache twirling villainous set pieces and it's also one of those films that everything's all really uh, middling and then the moment that they reveal that this insurance guy is actually 
working against them. It's almost like the rest of the um, the guys then back at the mine who are all the management. It's like, oh, we can relax now. We we can we can just be clearly evil as well now. Then so all, mm. all the all the characters just change when that reveal happens. Um, and it's just silly, just really boring. And because the CG is so bad, none of the and also I was watching this film and the, there's scenes where they just um, they'll just reel off. Uh, really jargon-laden dialogue about what it is to drive a truck on these dangerous mm. roads, and you know, like sort of it real inner knowledge. And I was quite enjoying that. And then they just start doing stupid stuff, and mm. uh, and saying stupid stuff, and stupid stuff keeps happening. And it's like, well, I'm not even getting that, um, you know, born, which we'll talk about later on. That sort of born identity. Oh, this is a guy who knows his stuff. I'm. It's just a lot of silly bollocks now. And like I said, it got to about 50 minutes before the end. And I thought this film has been so generic and so boring that I know exactly what's going to happen. And I paused it readily under Wikipedia and thought, yeah, I'm not watching that. And just turned it off. It's it's awful. It's And I don't... I've read some reviews of people who said, oh, it's fine. It's typical Liam Neeson stuff. It's not. It's substandard Liam Neeson. Because he's there's no effort here. And he, he, he does need to be in the film. This could have been a first... first director first time director knocking this out and it would have just been totally and utterly forgotten it's just they've just lucky they've got liam neeson and matt salinger in the lead um so yeah unless you really like you know films set in a wintry landscape there's there's nothing here at all sorcerer um it is available to rent for money on amazon Unlike William Friedkin's other film, um, To Live and Die in L.A. Oh, right, okay. Which is not available on any streaming platforms, which you found out the other day, which is just uh, horrible. It's just not on at all. But anyway, Sorcerer is is available and it is recommended. Because when you're describing the basic plot, I mean, because Sorcerer, which is a bad title because it doesn't give you any idea about what the film's about, but it's it's essentially a remake. Especially because it was was released in, what, 82, 83? No earlier than that, seventies, late seventies. Yes, which yeah. so you're talking about like the proper sword and sandal stuff. So you release a film called Sorcerer. You just think, oh, it's kind of like Conan type thing, oh. but no, it's literally about a load of dudes, a load of mismatched dudes trying to transport um very volatile dynamite cross country basically in trucks. It's a remake of Wages of Fear, um, which was the same plot basically, but and all that is, like you kind of wanted Ice Road to be, was people versus the elements. People trying to work, yeah. mismatched people trying to work together to achieve a task, which is all you need. You don't need baddies and all that kind of twists and stuff. You just need, yeah, it just needs to be man versus nature, etc. But, yeah, anyway, but it's an opportunity to get people to watch Sorcerer, so... So some good has come out of Liam Neeson's latest debacle. Um, is, oh, I thought you were going to talk about Sorcerer then. <laughs> there's nothing else to say really about it. Well, there's plenty to say about it. I may watch it again, actually. Um, just to... But, I mean, there's so many... Oh, William Friedkin is, is such a good career. And I'm glad that his films are getting a kind of... Um, are being looked at again. And he's not just the exorcist guy anymore. Didn't you know, he? Although... Didn't he direct Killer Joe? He did direct Killer Joe. Yeah, that's, that's a film. That is. <laughs> that is, is a film. It's full on. 
I really think that was probably the that was the moment when I realised that Matthew McConaughey was really having his reconnaissance. It's kind of joke. Um. So what? Ice story. What's that on? That's is that Netflix or? Stop calling it Ice Story and Ice Storm and Ice, ice Harvest. Road. The Ice Road. You know what channel that is on? Ice Story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, it's on Amazon Prime, but uh, on Netflix is a film called Fatherhood, which I'll cover very quickly because well, on, not not Fatherhood, no, oh, with Patrick Swayze, <laughs> no, sadly not. This is uh, this is very this is a new release starring Kevin Hart. It's like a I assumed it was going to be comedy because it's got Kevin Hart, but it's really a dramedy. Um, uh, so Kevin Hart plays a new dad whose wife dies in childbirth, leaving him to raise his daughter on his own. And um, no one really believes in him, especially his in-laws. Uh, he's got a couple of buddies helping him out, including one of them is the guy, the slightly creepy looking guy who plays Victor Zaz in Gotham. Um, they, so he helps him out. Um, but his greatest barrier is himself and specifically balancing his career and negotiating with his boss, played by Paul Reiser. Good. Um, balancing his career, his relationship and his parenting. It is written and directed by Paul Weiss of American Pie and About a Boy fame. It is remarkably generic with literally not a single surprise and a very gentle tone. Um it, like, I think we talked about parenthood a, a while back, and it doesn't have anywhere near the complexity or the sharp edges of uh, parenthood. Um, so you get, like, baby poo, there are baby screaming montages, there are awkward parent meetings where, of course, Kevin Hart is the only male. Ha ha. It, it, it seems like a vehicle which is designed entirely to entice the phrase, oh, Kevin Hart is surprisingly good in this, um, which doesn't mean he's brilliant. It's just that he's he's decent. Uh, I mean, I was pretty convinced by him, but I'm not convinced by the script, which is just so utterly bound to cliche that it, it can't... It, when something's this bound to cliche, it can't tell any kind of a more general truth. It's just a bunch of cliche strung together um and it's it's weird because it, i mean this is a film that's really aimed directly at me as in a new father balancing you know work parenting relationship all that kind of stuff and yet it didn't i don't feel it spoke to me on any meaningful level whatsoever i'd say the one good thing to come out of it is i'm intrigued to see kevin hart broadening his range a little bit because he's not just being a slapstick fall guy in this, so that is fatherhood. Um, yeah, yeah. So do another quick two minute. Yeah, go on. I'll bang out Assault on Precinct Thirteen because this came on to Prime. This just came on to Prime. Wait, is the the original the one with Ethan Hawke? This is the original. Nice. Um, oh, this is on Prime. This, yes, it's just come on to Prime. Uh, I've never and seen it. This is a this is a <sighs> film I've been waiting for the perfect time. You know. 
Well, this was made in 1976, and it was it's John Carpenter's first feature film after Dark Star. So really his first feature film, full stop, because Dark Star was just a glorified student film, really. It um, It is inspired by uh, Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead, both of which are brilliant as well. Um, so it's about this handful of cops and prisoners who are holed up in this police precinct as hordes of gangbangers try to shoot and stab their way in to because they're trying to get revenge on someone who killed one of their crew so basically the cops and the prisoners must work together to fight them off it's utterly absurd and unrealistic but i do i think it captures the mood perhaps of the mid-70s in general like especially in the u.s when like poverty and social decline and irrational violent crime was really rampant in in the u.s and and there's this whole subtext about law enforcement being horribly under-resourced. The theme music was, of course, remixed for Xenon 2, the Mega Blast on the Amiga. Good. Good. Um, naturally, John Carpenter does the music. Uh, it's basic but memorable. Uh, so the all the framing, all the lighting, the editing, I think John Carpenter edited it as well. So framing, lighting, editing, all the tension, all of it's from a horror movie. It's not a horror movie, but all of that stuff is from a horror movie. And... Even the fact that the like the the attackers they're using silences to like shoot at the building, so it has this weird, eerie kind of almost poltergeist like quality, and it's just really, really efficient and really intense and atmospheric. And there's some decent characters as well, especially the prisoners. Um, and there's no tedious monologues explaining backstories because characters just reveal themselves gradually through dialogue and behaviour. Um, now, it's actually, I think according to Rotten Tomatoes, it's actually the highest rated John Carpenter film. Really? Which I found uh, interesting. Have they, have they not seen the thing? <laughs> well, this is the thing. It's, some people do regard it as the best Carpenter film now, which I think, frankly, is pushing it. Um, because I think Escape from New York covers similar ground and it's a better action movie. But overall, I just think John Carpenter, his natural inclination is to pure horror really like like i said i mean it's almost filmed like a horror movie and and i just think his horror movies are generally better but i think given the resources that he had because this must have cost about four pound fifty and it's still better than most action films from that period and especially in terms of the intensity and, and the editing it, like it is ahead of its time it's it's a really really impressive film you can see why you know he went on that amazing run basically up until the end of the 80s where it was just like just amazing movie after amazing movie really so definitely check this one out yeah i'm, I'm definitely gonna watch that uh before i'm gonna have to preface the next film which is the intruder from 2019 starring dennis quaid right. i just want to i just want to <sighs> I'm going to tell you about the story of the film, right? but I want to tell you a personal story first because I think the emotions are very much the same as when films like this start. I get flashbacks to a certain time in my late teens. There was a girl that I fancied uh, when I was in my, well, from when I was about like 13, right up till I was about like 1920. And she was a friend of um, a member of the family. And, um, I, and she was a complete screamer. And I remember once when I went to Evolution in the Bay, 
right? And I was there looking dorky with glasses on, and she was like, I'll come and dance. And then we were dancing, and it was like a, one of those phone party things. And I was standing there dancing, and she, she sort of danced away from me. And then she started lifting up her top and her bra, and I thought, oh, my God, this is like an American pie moment, right? The, the world went into slow motion, and I was looking. And I thought, I am going to see her boobs. This is going to be this is going to be burned into my mind until I'm on my deathbed, clutching my ticker and shouting yes, right? And as she as as she was lifting them up, the foam cannon hit me square in the face and knocked my glasses off my face. And I just and then she just <laughs> laughed and I just didn't see anything. I didn't see any boobs. So, but that the, that the build up to that moment. That that mm. where the world drops into slow motion, and I'm your every fiber of my being is focused on this one thing. It happened to me when I watched this film, right? Because the films, the film starts with a couple drive into a house, <laughs> and, and they hint that like it's the kind of first time the woman's ever seen it and i said oh baby oh come goodness. on oh come on let the, let the guy talk let this be a massive life-changing event that you've had no involvement with let it happen and she's like oh can we afford it oh that's right you drive down to that path you drive up you, you he, he doesn't let you know about your financial situation you don't know if you can afford it do you and they pull up and then she's like oh it looks beautiful oh that's right you didn't go on the peter allen website did you baby no you haven't been involved in any of this this is a total surprise baby isn't it and i, I every time this happens in the film when it's an american family to Turning up to a house and probably haunted the shit and back, and no one apart from the dad has been involved in any legal aspects. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm looking at just... you, sinister. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Every time, brilliant. We're, I think I think Pet Cemetery might be the same as well. It's just constant. I love it's it. Ridiculous. I absolutely love it when they say, "Can we afford this? It's beautiful." Um, and and then it, it's, it's really... even better when. They rock up at the house and it, the initial impression is, oh, it's beautiful. And then literally within seconds, they go around the back and there's like a graveyard or something there. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, no, I'm not sure about it, actually. It's right. Right. OK, brilliant. Well, we're committed now because yeah, I didn't cause... consult you in any way. <laughs> Boom. Angus Scrim is floating above it with spheres rotating around him and you're like oh, i don't know that, that wasn't in the picture on that wasn't on the peter allen website <laughs> um, so yeah but this this does a little bit of a twist on that um i've got to say as well sinister obviously it's one of my favorite films but i'm pretty sure that when his wife says did did someone live here who died he literally looks away and goes hmm um, as, as if that's going to buy. And this is the if... funny thing about, isn't it, it? But isn't the whole thing about that as well in Sinister? The whole thing is that he's done it before as well. Like multiple he keeps, times, he multiple keeps times. Take, <laughs> keeps yeah. taking them to literally just like murder houses to live. Yeah, she says, "Have you?" The, the the sheriff mentioned something about like, "Oh, shame about what happened here." And the woman, his wife, looks at him. Ethan Hawke like looks at the floor, and the sheriff goes, "Anyway, buy off you go." And she says, "Have you bought a house that where there's been murders in?" And he goes. Hmm? As if that's going to buy him enough time for her to forget about it, and then like we can just move on. Anyway, this does a bit of a twist on that. The Intruder, twenty nineteen, Dennis Quaid, because they they they're trying to start a family. It's uh, um, M M Michael Ely is is the the guy who's buying the house, and he's a hotshot lawyer from San Francisco, the big city, and the house is in Napa Valley, and uh, Michael Ely, I. Knew him actually. I recognized him and I found it. It's from Takers. He's one of the gang in Takers that we talked about a few episodes ago. And 
they turn up and Dennis Quaid uh, shoots a deer in front of them, which they get really unnerved by. And it's this beautiful rural house in the Napa Valley. And they're taken round and it's quite dated. But the, his wife, uh, played by Megan Good, completely falls in love with the place. Like, thinks this is the perfect place mm. to start a family, move out of the city. This is gorgeous. And Dennis Quaid sort of says to her, you know, you, you see it, don't you see how beautiful this house is? And it, it is gorgeous. You've got vineyards around it, because um, Napa Valley is very much winemaking country. You've got uh, water features in the garden, a huge drive. It's completely isolated. It backs onto a nature reserve, and it's a beautiful house that just needs slight modernization. She is besotted, and her husband finds Dennis Quaid to be really odd, possibly because he's got that massive cheesy grin, and every time he turns away from them to the camera, that grin drops, and a dark frown appears. It's almost like <laughs> it's almost like Michael Ealy can see what we see, and he's really uncertain, and he keeps on walking into rooms right where it literally just needs to be. Like the wallpaper needs to be changed. He's like, "Oh no, this is really old fashioned, babe. This we we're like, why do you like about this?" It's like, "Yeah, but you're not going to walk in. It's just going to be ultra modern. You. This is like a two hundred year old farmhouse." Anyway, so they go outside. This is within the first five minutes of the film, and she says, "We need to buy this place. We need to start a family here." And the guy says, "I don't know. It's three and a half million dollars, and it's really at the peak of our price range." And Dennis Quaid says, "I'll take you know three point two. And they're shaking it, boom. And the film then goes down the path of he basically says he's going to go and live with his daughter in Florida. He doesn't really want to move, but he's getting older and, you know, his daughter wants him to be near her. And he keeps this, the family keep coming home and he's there. And there's this friction between the, his wife, who just wants to be friendly, just thinks he's a bit of a lonely older guy, and the husband, who just wants him to just piss off and leave him alone. And that is the film. I don't need to talk about the rest of because it's basically, you know, them going downstairs for a glass of water in the middle of the night, a lightning flashes, and then Dennis Quaid is sort of squatted behind the fridge, that sort of thing, right? <laughs> but um, the, the real meat of this film comes from the fact that it could have been. What's wrong? What are you laughing at? It's got an image of Dennis Quaid squatting behind the fridge. <laughs> Oh yeah. my god! Yeah. Like and then Michael, Michael Lee waking up, and then his wife saying, "Did you did you hear that downstairs?" And then, <laughs> no, no, what was it? Was it a creek? Was it the pipes? No, no, no. It sounded like Dennis Quaid saying, "Oh my fucking knees!" Oh, I didn't hear that. Um, so yeah, so the film could have been completely avoided by two things. One, them reading through the legal paperwork. <laughs> We would have explicitly stated um, the events of the house uh, uh, like uh, the, and the reasons for sale, which they would have to explain in this situation. So yeah. just going through the legal documentation, boom, film solved. Um, secondly, there's three actually. Secondly, the fact that Michael Lilly is a hotshot lawyer and at the end of the film, he tries to get the bottom of it by literally asking one person in his firm to do two seconds of research and mm. it kicks off the events of the final act which he could have just done at the start when it's very yeah. clear that there's something shady going on. Save me an hour and 20 minutes. And thirdly, if one of them on this property walked into the shed at any point <laughs> of the months they lived there, walked into the shed, they would have thought, oh, hang on. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but those three events, right? Like they could have just stopped the film 
I enjoyed it because it was just fantastically ridiculous. The things that were going on, and mm. the film doesn't. There's a bit where um, he, the, the first of all, the husband says, uh, "Oh, he he he's he, he's in love with the house. He's not going to leave the house alone." And then there's a bit where he's in the garden and he bumps into Dennis Quaid, who is clearing up. The house is called Foxglove, and Foxglove is extremely poisonous. And he sees my, um, Dennis Quaid in the garden and says, oh, are you picking flowers for my wife? And Dennis Quaid says, no, this is Foxglove. I'm getting rid of it because it's really poisonous. And then a few minutes later, he says to his wife, oh, I bumped into him and he was bringing you flowers. He's obviously in love with you. And I thought, hmm, bit of a leap of logic here. Bit it's of a leap of logic. Not, not, not what, what we said. saw. Yeah. Um, not, so, what, not what he said, not what we saw. And in fact, what he said was entirely plausible. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely worth a watch because it is. It, this could have been made slap bang in 1995. This is like proper sub Cape Fear territory, which is very much where I like to roam and frolic and gamble in the fields. It's it just absolutely wonderful, absolutely wonderful, really silly um, thriller, high concept thriller. So, get is it actually enjoyable? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's just because so, I got to say that Dennis Quaid is really hamming it up in a wonderful way. Because of course he yeah. has got that ridiculous, slightly sinister grin, and he's using yes. it to effect, and he's in great shape as well. Um, so oh, is he old man buff? No. Yeah, he is old man buff. His politics yeah. don't dovetail with my own, but uh, yeah, he is old man buff, and he's definitely much more together than his brother Randy. So uh, yeah, oh, uh, the Intruder Netflix film of the week. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be about 90 minutes as well. Uh, it wouldn't dare. 102. 102. Well, okay, that's not too bad. As long as it doesn't push anywhere near two hours, I mean, you, that's just silly, isn't it? Um, okay, I, I might watch that then. That sounds amusing. Um, so that was on Netflix. Uh, let's switch back over to Prime and talk about Scanner Cop. <clears throat> Which was made in 1994. So this is actually part of the Scanner series of films, except Scanner Cop was a spin-off series. Um, so it's about telekinetic people with telekinetic powers, basically. Um, this telekinetic kid sees his telekinetic dad killed by cops. Um, uh, one of the cops who looks like Stacy Keach, but isn't him. He um, he takes the off now orphan under his wing um and basically so this cop essentially raises this telekinetic child and the child you know 20 years later or 15 years later becomes a cop himself um you don't need to have seen other scanners films because near the start a doctor with feathered hair gives a quick history um so yeah um, it, it literally within the first, you know, it's the first five minutes. The the kid sees his dad killed. He's taken to a, a mental hospital, and the cop is like saying, "Oh, these damn scientists!" So of course he adopts him, and then it jumps forward fifteen years within five minutes. Brilliant. Um, so the second the second that kid is inducted into the force, the day one he is shooting people dead. He is instantly just killing, uh, killing bad guys. Um, is he bending over and shooting between his legs as well? At <laughs> he might as well be. Um, he is. He's partnered with a veteran cop, and he's given lessons in being like an LA 
beat cop. Um, one of the lessons, one of the key piece of advice is uh, if you want to survive, you've got to keep your eyes open. Thank you. That's excellent. That's brilliant. So don't close my eyes. Is that what you're saying? All right. Okay, good. Um, so basically, the story is that civilians are having these like scarecrow-like hallucinations um, where they imagine that cops are flesh-eating zombies and things like that, and they're attacking them. So, of course, they, yeah, they attack the cop and kill them. Um, it turns out the bad guy is injecting people with some sort of hallucinogen, um, whilst showing them like traumatic images from their past alongside images of cops. So they associate the trauma with the cop and therefore want to blow the cop away. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, uh, so the real question is, can the rookie cop be convinced to unleash his scanner powers in order to understand the minds of these crazy killers? Uh, yes, is the answer, by the way. Um, so oh, there's so many amazing scenes in this film. It's, it's incredible. There's like there's a scene where the where the detectives go to like a a murder scene and they're literally given Cuban cigars before they go in there to like cover up the smell of flesh. It's incredible. At one point, the hero guy is wearing dark stonewashed jeans with turnips. It's incredible. <laughs> um, there's a really good synth score. It's got like twinkly keyboards, like echoing snares. It's all the good stuff. All the telekinesis scenes are people staring at each other with gritted teeth, judging and vibrating. Yes, yes, yeah, good. Yes, yes. yes, yes, yes. Three films my, in, still doing it. <laughs> my personal favourite scene is where the scanner cop he sits down in front of a computer. Right, he clasps a CRT monitor and psychically connects to a copy of Paint on Windows three point one <laughs> to create. A photo real image of the suspect they're looking for. It's incredible. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like a black and white, but photo like photo real is incredible. It's just something that couldn't be done on, on that particular program. Um Yeah, it's not even Mario Paint on the snares. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna watch that film. How about yes. that? And the sequel scanners the showdown. There's some pretty ropey makeup. Um you get a melty face, you get an exploding head. Not quite enough. For my liking, but in between, there's just a load of like ridiculous shootouts, so that's fine. Um, it's exactly the kind of thing I'd want in my horror collection because it just about qualifies as a horror movie, but um, it's like preposterously expensive. Like, it's like I saw the double pack of one and two for like 70 quid on eBay, so I don't know what's going on there. So, are you going to watch the sequel, Scanners the Showdown? Because that's yeah, I think you'll. Oh, I have actually started watching that. It's got Patrick Kilpatrick in it, isn't it? Yeah, that's what that drew me to it. I, I've started watching it. Um, doesn't seem quite as... <laughs> it doesn't seem quite as good as the original. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's got him in it. Yeah, it seems much more of a straightforward horror, really. But this is this is good. It's just bonkers. It's all um, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch that. And that's on Amazon Prime, did you say? Of course. Yeah. Um, I got a quick two minute. If that's cool, <clears throat> I'm. I've been trying to watch this film for a year now, and it's on Now TV. And I only got a subscription to Now TV because, or Now Entertainment. I don't even know what I paid for because Faye wanted to watch the Friends, um, you know, re, whatever it's called, um, reunited thing. Friends reunited. She wanted to go on the Friends reunited website. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. I watched some of that. By the way, I, I popped in when she was watching it, and it just um, Matthew Perry as. 
mm. is obviously just really troubled, bless him, and is just drained of character. And it must have been really hard for him to do that for whatever reason. But he shouldn't be sad because when he, he should think back to the scene where he ran away from Bruce Willis in all nine yards, which is the absolute pinnacle of his career uh, and indeed the pinnacle of physical comedy. Um, this is I watched a documentary called King Rocker, which is written by Stuart Lee. And it's about a guy called Robert Lloyd, who is a sort of pseudo famous um, Birmingham musician who was in a band called the Prefects and then later on the Nightingales. And I just wanted to quickly mention it because it's. Well, first, it's brilliant because Stuart Lee is involved. And <laughs> secondly, it's Robert Lloyd who comes from it. The Nightingales and the Preface come from this kind of art punk background. I, apart from, I think, two songs out of the many they play throughout the film, I really wasn't on board with it. It's that sort of um, angular 70s, 80s punk. You appear to have some sort of uh, crooning pop thing going on in the 90s. And now... He seems to um, be the music he's releasing now is slightly more um, up my strasse. But the film takes the uh, wraparound that in the seventies in in Birmingham there was a statue of King Kong by an artist called Nicholas Monroe, and it and it went missing. And um, mm. it, uh, Stuart Lee compares Robert Lloyd to the statue in that uh, Birmingham has has got um, he says in the opening it's got a history of just um, rejecting its own artistic values, um, and and so they kind of try to capture what happened to the statue of King Kong, as they un- unveil more of Robert Lloyd's life uh, and talent history. It's got a lot a lot of um, it's got a really really funny monologue in the middle of it by Kevin Eldon reading out scene from a script that was written, and I don't think ever ever um, televised uh, for a sitcom that Robert Lloyd. Wrote and he's funny because he's just he looks basically like our friend Vinny in 25 years that's just that's literally how he looks and but what I really liked about the film is that Robert Lloyd himself he has a pretty modest living now he's still he's still in the Nightingales and you know they're basically fans that came on board and support him they still tour um you know still make music he he is he's in a solid relationship he's you know been through a lot of health problems but he is it's almost like he is just staunchly against sentimentality and there are so many scenes in the film where Stuart lee will say oh this is the scene of the film where this should happen and and robert Lloyd will just be against it and um Stuart lee will try and um use wordplay to sort of entice him into maybe revealing more about himself or just ha- having a sort of a-, a deep emotional moment and he will just be completely against it and it's just a running joke throughout it uh, there's a scene that really tickled me in the middle of this film where they they're outside just the it looks like um just like a i don't know a, a delivery section of some warehouse and see what lee says oh so this is where the famous pub where you played your first ever gig was and robert lloyd says yes um, you know, a lot, a lot of memories here. This is where you know some of the best punk bands of the '70s played, and it's long gone now. And then it cuts, and they're outside this huge, like modern glass building in Birmingham, and they just say the same words. And then it cuts again, and Stuart Lee's just lifting up the lid to a really buzzing old bin, and they, and then it, they repeat the same thing. And then Robert Lloyd says, "Yeah, I've got a lot of memories here. In fact, I can actually still see some of them. Uh, I was weak." Um, so the whole film has just got this um, resistance to sentimentality through it, and it just makes it oddly more endearing. Especially, yeah. um, it's not really a spoiler, but at the end when they track down the King Kong statue, and Stuart Lee, you see him look at the camera, duck out a shot, and Robert Lloyd actually just looks at it, and for a second, 
reflect on his own legacy, whatever that mm-hmm. may be, to whoever it affects. And it just it was a really um, endearing, funny film that I, I will watch again, even though the music pretty much does not appeal to me. Um, so hmm. King Rocker, it, it is a twat to find on Now TV. You can't even search for it. I had to go to a, I had to go on um, on Reddit and find instructions to go to a certain like sort of department on the on Now TV and scroll down for about two minutes to find it. It's really bizarrely hard to find, but it is on Now TV if you fancy it. That sounds like Rakuten. Rakuten, the worst streaming service. <laughs> What's it called? King Rocker. King Rocker. Yeah. God, yeah, it is difficult to find, isn't it? Mm, yes. Yeah, it's, it's literally just now TV. It's the only place. In, in cool, fact, though. I did actually. Um, I did tweet them to let them know how difficult it was to find. My tweet actually from last week, and I watched it, says, At King Rocker Film, I just thoroughly enjoyed your wonderful movie and Robert's absolute and hug-worthy resistance to sentimentality. Now TV, however, does not make finding the documentary easy. The search function works like my dad after six pints in that it does not. <laughs> so I have, I have raised the issue. Good. Drew attention to it. Right, how many... When you got left, we, we got I've got, minutes, I've, got I've got one I can wrap into two, so two really. Okay, um, well I've got a couple more. Let's, all right, let me do, um, let me talk about Honey Boy on Prime. Uh, Honey Boy was made in 2019. Uh, it's autobiographically written by Shia LaBeouf. It is a film which cuts between 2005 and 1995. So in 2005, um, this young man called Otis, he's a 22-year-old actor who goes into rehab. He's diagnosed with PTSD. He relates his childhood to his therapist. And then we see the events of 1995 when he was 12. Um, He's living with his rageful, resentful, alcoholic, ex-con father, who is played by Shia LaBeouf. Um. So effectively, Shia LaBeouf is playing his own dad um, in this movie. Um, so the dad is basically his son's agent, uh, but he's he's a bit of an abusive monster, really. Um, so the the film is about the kid's experience as a child actor and his and then cutting to his young adulthood, coming to terms with the bullshit he survived. Shia LaBeouf is really good in this. Um, I think it's such a cool idea for him to play his own dad. Uh, naturally, he's got he's balding, but has also shoulder length hair and a beer gut, so that was good. Um, Lucas Hedges plays him as the older kid, and uh, sort of plays the the kid as the older you know kid in two thousand five. Um, Lucas Hedges, he was the one. He was in Manchester by the Sea, and in Boy Raised, and he's great in them, and he's great here as well. It's um, you can tell it's like autobiographical it's just full of like tiny little details that a writer might not think of like like the way that the kid he he strokes his father's feet quite tenderly to wake him up before the his dad wakes up and just the abuse begins again um i mean there's not all abuse there's some kind of fun and intimacy but it's all part of the power dynamic really between this kid this child actor essentially and his 
abusive father. Um, so it, it's the film is quite a cool structure where the older Otis, he experiences certain triggers in his life, which take him back to some traumatic memory of childhood. And that's when we cut back sort of thing. Um, but the, yeah, the relationship between um, the dad played by Shia LaBeouf and the kid is such a toxic relationship. And like, the kid, he's 12, and he's sort of this mediator in his parents' broken marriage. And and the kid, he only wants to keep his father around, keep his father employed, basically, out of sympathy because no one else will employ him because he's next gone. Um, there's a really sad scene where the young Otis, he's, he's acting out a scene in the film that he's doing, whatever, the sitcom. Uh, he's acting out a scene where the actor... Um, playing his character's father is really smart and wealthy and caring and and the kid he, f- he fantasizes about his own dad saying those words to him but it's just not going to ever happen um, yeah so the, a lot of critics pointed out that this film is kind of like a form of therapy although I think it's more of an act of forgiveness on Shia LaBeouf's part because he's basically trying to empathize with the man who messed him up really and what better way to empathise with him to, than to literally become him? him. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my my concern was because I knew the basic premise of this before going to it, and my concern was that it would be a sort of this act of woe is me, self pitying. But it's more like it's more like Shia LaBeouf saying, "I I've been an asshole, and I'm not denying that, but I'm going to contextualise it a little bit with." giving you a bit of my history sort of thing. So that's fair enough. Um, there's at one point, really, really, really punishing line where Otis says, the only thing my father gave me was the value of pain. Um, but um, he... Bought him an album, did he? <laughs> wow. Um, he he doesn't want... The interesting thing is that the older Otis, he doesn't want his therapist to extinguish the pain. Because... He's basically saying the only thing I got from my father was pain, but he doesn't want his therapist to extinguish that pain because then it effectively erases his father. Because if that's all he associates with him, um, then he's gone. So sort of thing. it's quite a dialogue light film. There's a lot of meaningful montage sequences, um, like a really depressing sequence where the father is smoking crack in a strip club and it's intercut with his son having his first innocent romantic encounter. Um, but it isn't all doom and gloom because there are some there are some amusing rows between the son and the father. Um, so it is quite, quite amusing, but it is harrowing at the same time. And but even when a film is harrowing, I think it's ultimately positive when it points to some emotional truth, um, which I think this does. And it's good. I've yet to see a bad Shia LaBeouf film, by the way. And this I might would... be the best of the bunch, to be honest. I would agree, and I've seen Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Really? I, yeah, I, I think that it was... I don't know why. With Shia LaBeouf, I think there was a period in the mid-2003 where he was almost seen as a bit of a figure of fun, but as we yes. said in the last episode, my experience with him has been you know, with the um, the Sia music video and his more recent output, and I've always just liked him. I think he was in one of the Transformers films, but again, I haven't seen them, so... He doesn't mess about. Fair play. I mean, he was, yeah, he was in quite a lot of twaddle, but I mean, I've only, I've only seen him stuff like Lawless and Fury and yeah, 
Peanut Butter Falcon, that's another good one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this re- so Honey Boy is recommended. Um, Honey Boy, is the, the title, does it have any meaning in the film itself? Or His dad calls him that, Honey Boy. Um, not quite sure why. I guess and maybe someone, because he's like a, a cute child actor, so I guess so maybe someone's called him that. But it's like a kind of like a real juxtaposition between that particular name for him, because it's such a cutesy name, and just the utter viciousness with which he treats him. I'm going to talk really... Jarring. Really quickly about Premonition uh, from 2007, which is not a remake of a um, Korean film. As we were in our chat, um, one of our friends, we'll call him Jimmy Automatic, um, suggested. And I thought it really didn't feel like it. Um, And I looked into it and it's not. It's just got a similar name and I think it was released the same year or something. It probably would have been far better if it was Rupert. So this is a 2007 film starring Sandra Bullock. It's a film I've seen before and didn't realize until about 20 minutes in. I said, oh, yes, I remember this. It's billed as a supernatural thriller, but it really felt more like a Christian drama. Um, mm. the, the plot is that uh, Jim and Linda Hansen, played by Sandra Bullock and Julian McMahon, have two, two uh, young girls, and their relationship is a bit dicky. Uh, and he is away on a business trip. She picks up the phone and he leaves a message. And, and she finds out later on that he has died. And she goes to a Peter Stamari, obviously a psychologist, who says, "Oh yeah, you were here. You were here yesterday as well." And she things don't, you know, start not adding up. She goes to bed and wakes up, and her husband is alive, and she gets locked in this weird loop, um, trying to work out what happened. Now, the problem is that it's not twenty years, and I know some of us play fast and loose with the twenty-year rule, Rupert, um, but not not naming names. But it's not me, and there's only two of us. And and the problem with this is because the script, um, I'm guessing when they got the script, because she's supposed to know, Sandra Bullock's character is supposed to, know, to have certain uh, pieces of information each day she wakes up. I don't know if it was too complicated or whatever. <laughs> and so what they've sort of done is she will just follow a routine until at some point she will randomly remember she's in a loop at the perfect time to leave mm. some scribbled notes and hide them for herself to find the next time, you know? Um, yes. where, whereas there's no real reason for that. Every time she wakes up, she, as far as we know, and as far as the plot uh, sort of declares, she mm. knows she's in a loop, but she seems to forget at key moments for no real reason. Um, wow. okay. it's, almost, it's almost like the plot logic is at the mercy of a poor script. So, <laughs> um, also the title of my new book. Um, yeah, and... And so instantly it's it's all a bit it doesn't feel real but you can't really get on board with anything because you think well does she know she's in loop or does she not oh and she's writing something down a crayon and hiding it under the bottom of a chair so she must oh but now she doesn't appear no she's in a loop and it's just it's all there to just put in place this weirdly um conservative ending where well, which I'm not going to spoil it because I'd be intrigued to see what other people think. Again, feel free to email us at themenotalk at outlook.com. But when it when the film finished, it was the ending was obviously supposed to be really upbeat, but to me it it was just I I don't know it was, it was bizarrely it was almost like a, it felt like a religious film. I felt like um mm. like like as long as as long as life continues, that's all that matters. Um, mm. 
and and it and not and not only was the last sequence in the film really at odds with what you've seen before, it, it was just almost like it was just placed at the end just not to upset anyone. Um, mm. The film also there's a scene where <clears throat> we we the reason that the marriage is faltering is that it's it seems pretty clear that her husband is having an affair. But the film goes out of its way to try to not go too far to make him look like too much of a tinker by saying, oh, he was going to have an affair, but now he's not going to. So there's almost like a little bit of drama, but not enough to upset anyone. Um, and <laughs> it sounds just, very gentle. It yeah. Sounds very yes. Um, it's, it's, it's like they're gonna, we're going to make a supernatural thriller, but we, you know, everyone's, we don't want anyone crying. So, yeah, it just, yeah, Newt is, is a good word. It's just, it just feels very, a bit placid and... Um, clinical and really not very good and oddly depressing in, in its okay. outlook as well. So don't watch that. Watch the Korean version. Even though it's not, so Even it's not that film. Um, when, when was it made again? 2007. Okay. Mm. This doesn't <laughs> sound... Our friend Mal, by the way, when I was chatting to him about this, I said... Um, uh, our, our gay friend Mal. Um, I said... Oh yeah, that film Premonition with the guy from Mad Men in, which obviously I've not seen because it's on the Savalas. And he said, oh, John Hamm. And I said, no, the, the other guy in Mad Men. And he said, there was someone else in Mad Men. Uh, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Ah, <laughs> oh, classic well. Uh, it's, uh, how many have you got left? I've got one more, two. Yeah, Please. I've got two that I can wrap up in one. So I'll let you go and then I'll, I'll finish. Okay, well, let me, because I, I need to talk about this film. A film called um, Extro. Oh God, a, I've been very close to watching this. You need to continue down that path. Uh, so, <laughs> it's obviously on Prime. It's an it's a British horror film made in 1982. <clears throat> so it starts with <laughs> this kid called Tony. It starts with Tony's dad being abducted by aliens, uh, and then three years later. Um, a really creepy alien. I think it's got an inver- inverted knees as well. I w- you'll be glad to hear. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Tony's really dad a- got abducted by aliens, by the way, could well be the opening lyric to a Nightingale song from Kid Rocker. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe it's, it took inspiration <laughs> from Extro. Um, so anyway, three years later, this creepy alien lands uh, in this English village and just starts terrorising the locals. It then takes the form through various contrived means, it takes the form of the kid's dead dad. So to them, to the kid and his wife, who is now with someone new, it looks like he's returned from the grave because they just thought he's gone, you know. So the family thinks he's been away for three years and just got amnesia. His wife's moved on. She's living with an American boyfriend now. So obviously the father's return causes a lot of tension in the family. Now, the alien dad, because let's face it, he is now an alien, isn't he? He is quite open with his son about the alien abduction. And of course, he gives his son telekinetic powers, obviously. Um, so basically, the kid becomes a blood sucking alien like him. And then other people get turned into aliens. But no one knows who's an alien or even that an alien is involved. In fact, it's very strange. The editing in this film is remarkable like i'm not sure if it's avant-garde or if it's just slapdash frankly but some of the cuts are just 
discombobulating. Like this one moment where there'll be someone standing beside a curtain, right? And then they'll turn around and it will cut and they'll be in a completely different room. And it's like, it's it's so odd. It's so discombobulating. Anyway, there's amazing, amazing synth music by Harry Bromley Davenport. He wrote wrote and directed (laughs) Harry Bromley Davenport. You said that that like everyone listening is going to go, oh, Harry Bromley Davenport. Yeah, I've got his entire back catalogue on Laserdisc. But it's got this, the music's got this weird, squishy, moogie sound and that that sort of eeriness that you associate with like the BBC Radiophonic Orchestra, you know, the whole Delia Dodge mm. stuff. Love it. Um, and it's got really weird sound design. So you can't tell what are like alien sounds and what's music. So that's good as well. Do you hear uh, the sound? Pew, 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 pew. Oh, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. All of that stuff. Um, the supporting acting isn't that great. I mean, these are these actors have clearly been sourced from like repertory theater and they're very melodramatic and very posh, but the main actors are fine. You get some recognizable faces from British TV shows. Uh, There is an absolutely disgusting sequence where a woman gives birth to a full grown man, um, which is quite infamous now, I think, but the whole film, I mean, it's not just that that's the famous sequence, but the whole film has got this really enjoyable, WTF factor because you genuinely don't know the rules of anything in this like uh, of this kind of alien threat because one minute like the alien is like sashing someone's eyes out then it's impregnating people then it's uh, like a doppelganger then it's got telekinesis then the doppelganger will be like spitting a parasite into a child's shoulder and then the kid is hallucinating about a dwarf clown and it's like it, it's there's a really cool scene actually where like a plastic army man grows to life size and comes alive and goes on the rampage. So it's got a really wicked sense of humor. It seems brilliant from what you said. It's so good. The special effects are pretty shoddy, but they're very imaginative and gross. And there's a real dreamlike quality to the threats because there'll be like a sequence where someone is terrorized by a remote controlled tank and then he'll just suddenly be attacked by a panther or something. And it's like, it sounds relentlessly weird, but it's, but this is the cool thing about it is that yes, it's got these weird dreamlike sequences in it, but it's then it's juxtaposed against this really strangely grounded, like soap opera type family dynamic thing going on at home, which is just really ordinary. It's so it's like a video nasty David Lynch film, or I would say more accurately, it's like a British phantasm, um, but a bit more fun than phantasm, I'd say. So it covers loads of genres. You get monster movie, sci-fi, slasher, imposter horror, you get zombie movie, all under 90 minutes. And so, yeah, got to watch it. Apparently the two sequels are rubbish, but this is enough for me. Uh, you, you, you saying that, that it was... Um, um... Like all this weirdly, like uncohesive, incohesive, sorry, um, buzzing body alien horror, yeah. um, over a real, um, sort of sitcom vibe reminded me of that. Um, that we used to talk about a show called Waiting to Turn, where it would be a 30 minute episode and 50 minutes would just be really boring Walton stuff, and then the father would suddenly turn into a werewolf and it would become really visceral and dark. So we'd be like, get, get away, it's happening, and they're like, what, yeah. daddy. Um, well, that yeah. was going to be the hook, wasn't it? Like, you yeah. knew at some point in the episode it was just going to really not not just 
it wouldn't just be someone turning into a werewolf. It would be like the whole tone and focus of the show yeah. would suddenly turn as well. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, you know that they would start off and they'd all turn up at like this 50s fairground and be like, hey, another music will be playing. You're thinking, oh, you wait, you wait. <laughs> and then here yeah, we'd be like, oh, oh, come on, daddy. And he would like just have one of those like darts. And as he's about to throw the third dart and pop a balloon, he'd be, oh, get away from and yeah, and then we just have this horrible horror turn. Still a good idea. I reckon you get 12 seasons out of that, 24 episodes in a season. Um, I watched The Bourne Identity and The Bourne Supremacy. Yes. Films I haven't watched. I'm going to watch Extra, by the way. Was that on Amazon Prime? Of course it was. <laughs> good. Um, now, I watched The Bourne Identity. I think I've watched all of the films, including the one with Jeremy Bloody Renner in there. And Jesus. the new, and I watched the new one relatively recently, and I remember thinking that film really didn't feel like it needed to be made because the reason I wanted to watch these first two, well, I'm going to watch them all again, I think, just to just to get them all in my head. I remember really liking the Born Identity, and I cannot really the other ones sort of get mixed up in my mind. Then I remember just finding the Jeremy Renner one boring, so I had to look at his face, and then with the new one, I think it's just called Jason Bourne. I remember thinking. This film didn't need to be made at all because Julia Stiles does something really stupid at the start yes. for no reason and just drags him back into this old life. Yep. So it kind of irritated me from the start. It's like, well, you've got these in- incredibly intelligent people. That was kind of the whole pull. It's like people at the top of their game. And now you've yep. just got someone doing something stupid in an internet cafe and getting killed. So I, w- I wanted to go back and watch them all again. So I've watched the first two. And The Born Identity, I I really, really liked. Um, I, I thought it was... It was kind of this like nice washed out look to it and of course it's all set around europe and these like rainy cities there's nothing really grand there's no grandstanding about it um i like the i'll go back to this the average shot length in this film is four seconds apparently i, I did i did some research and I, I liked the whole well first start matt damon looks younger than my son in this film and he is just going around doing these incredibly capable things the the, the fight sequences are viewable and also it looks like they're, sl- they're not like too hacked up in terms of editing, but they've slightly no. sped up. So um, it is it's slightly um, it's slightly unusual in that you can tell when it goes into a fight, the footage is just sped up. Not to the extent of Mad Max, where the cars are going 20 miles an hour and the trees are going bonkers in the background. Um, but yeah, um, all good stuff. Really like the whole mystery. Frank Apatendi is really cool in it. Um, really like the music, actually, as well. And... I liked how it ended, and I thought, oh, do you know what? If that was a standalone film, I would have been really, really happy with that. It was a really funky film. Yeah. I went straight into The Born Supremacy, uh, which isn't directed by Doug Lyman, because apparently it was a really troubled production because he it went over budget and over time and so on. Oh, by the way, in The Born Identity, the scene at the start, I don't know if it's a famous scene or not, but I was watching it, and it's the scene where he... he when he gets off the boat and he's walking into... I think it's like it's supposed to be Zurich... And he disappears. Right. I think two people walk past, a truck goes past, and he disappears. I happened to notice that he had just... I thought it was initially it was CG, but I noticed he was just crouched running with this puff, dirty puffer jacket behind the truck, and it completely <laughs> ruined the illusion for me. And I was like, oh, okay. But then I thought, even if I hadn't seen that, what does that represent? Why would he do that? Because he's just walking into the city. He's not, <laughs> he doesn't know who he is. Why would he suddenly feel the yeah. need to disappear he's just walking in there to like you know get a train or something anyway arguably he's drawing more further attention to himself yeah by doing something so dodgy. It, yeah it was it just seemed i could i know what they're trying to do is make it look like oh look he's disappeared in the city but it just seemed it just seems stupid frankly a stupid choice anyway the born supremacy however 
this do you remember that film we watched? I can't remember the title of it, and I had to look away because I was getting headaches. Um, it was the film when every time there was action, the camera would start juddering. That vampire film we watched. Oh yeah, that was awful, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, not... Yes, I, I know the one you mean. It was like it's one of the, it's a screen shake effect that they add in post, isn't it? Yes, to and every just, action scene. Oh, that they film. just put it up it, to maximum. It, it was the episode. one with um, what's his name, Don the Dragon Wilson, the Don man the who's never made a good film, as far as we're aware. Mm. The Born Supremacy, the average shot length is 1.9 seconds, and it shows. Uh, the shaky cam in this, um, they, they were, I mean, uh, luckily I've got a young son that I have to kind of pause films and tend to every like 15, 20 minutes or whatever. And I genuinely think that saved me from just turning it off because the editing is so swift in this. And I don't know if it's to give the whole film a sense of urgency. It, it's, it, I just find it really headache-inducing. And I couldn't, it was like my eyes couldn't get to grips with anything that was happening on screen the fights are really messy uh mm. r- like really just closer it just looks like they've got a camera on a yo-yo and they're just swinging it around sometimes uh yeah it's it, the that type of editing which is thankfully was just a phase but it it seems to be designed not to explain what is happening to whom in the scene it seems to be just to give you a sense a sense of people fighting, not like to tell the story of their fight, but here are two people fighting. You get a general idea that they are fighting. Like, I don't actually know the specific moves that they're using on each other, but I know they're fighting because it's cutting all over the place and there are sounds and there are images. But yeah. Yeah. Well, there's even the car, the car chase, the car chase in the first one in Paris is, is gorgeous. Cause it's really, meticulously planned and it's very sort of swervy and neat and nippy and it's just really enjoyable to watch this one which is like a, a real messy you know clang and a banger one like up and down motorways and stuff it's again it suffers from the same situation uh, the same problems as the fight editing so it's just a car will turn and then you'll get a load of like in the time it takes for a car to turn a 90 degree corner you'll get four or five camera angles mm-hmm. and then and then you've got no sense of geography or what they're doing and then it'll bounce off something and the ca- and I just when the when it ended, I just oh thank God, like because it's it's shaky enough anyway, and this handheld it, the handheld like zooming in action is irritating enough. So when you've got you throw to that something that kinetic, it's even worse. Um, and the third one apparently, the Born Ultimatum is supposed to be the the most highly rated of the of the, the initial trilogy, but it's Paul Greengrass again. So yes, I've actually I've actually given myself a break because I thought. <laughs> I know that I will lose interest off. I just need to give my head a bit of a rest for it. But um, the music as well is just much more, it seems weirdly much more dated in this. It's much more energetic. Um, mm. And it. And I think it's just because, like you said, well, you've just nailed it by saying that the type of editing is a phase. And because the editing is such a big part of the film, yeah, it makes the sequel seem more dated than the original. And I'm just intrigued. Yeah, the third one's yeah that's interesting, actually, to, yeah, that it would be that way. Because there weren't... It, if you watch Batman Begins, for example, now, because that was, what, 2005? So it would have been, yeah, a year or so after Supremacy. Um, and that uses the same editing style, and it's awful, and it's utterly incomprehensible, and it just ruins otherwise well-made movies, because they're clearly well shot, technically fine. Why, why take something which is perfectly beautiful and just shatter it it's like taking a 
a gorgeous Ming vase and just smashing it on the floor and saying, yeah. oh, look, look, all the different little bits are pretty, aren't they? And it does. Can't make head or tail of it. It does. It does ruin it because you can't you can't enjoy it. You can't drink anything in. And, and also it, that it, it makes everything kind of a one one note orchestra because it's just boom, boom, boom all the time. Whereas the first one, you have some nice you know some nice dialogues between him and franco potente in, in the mini and it's it's quite character driven in this it's just constantly cutting back and forth like it cannot wait it cannot mm. wait to get to the next action sequence um carl urban is in this looking younger than some of my socks really young like i, yeah. I thought is that carl urban? <laughs> yeah. um so i'm gonna watch i'm gonna watch the third one i might even sit through the jeremy renner and the new the newest one again jason Warmbo. Yeah, the first the one is one... just is just a demonstrably better film than the sequel. It is, it is, and the third one I think is actually the weakest of the initial three. I've got to say, mm. like, because again, there's a there's one specific moment of utter stupidity in it. It it pretty much hinges on one moment of just total stupidity, which you're supposed to think is really clever. And I was just thinking, well, that's just silly. That wouldn't happen. Well, that, that that happens in the Born Supremacy because um, there's a bit where one of the guys d- does his job really well and point takes uh, takes Brian Cox in full view of everyone, especially Joan Allen. Um, says, "I want we want to show you something," and he he explains why Born is being framed. And Brian Cox says, "Oh, can you show me again?" And then stabs him, stabs him to death in the basement of whatever effectively is a CIA building and leaves him dead on the steps and goes upstairs and nothing is referenced or made of it for the entire film. So don't. Don't have this film that relies on you know the hyper intelligence and awareness of everyone involved, but then you can just do something really stupid and just not reference it. Um, and just just avoid that because I would throw the whole film off. They'd know he's a tinker. Then it just seemed a little bit lazy. But then again, it was so the editing was so quick that it was just boom, boom, boom anyway. Um, yeah, it's interesting that because I remember that at the time the supremacy and ultimatum were the with the more lauded films. That is not how I see it. That is not and it's not, no. Uh, Born Identity, that was directed by Doug Lyman, wasn't it? Of course, he went on to do Edge of Tomorrow. Which um, is one of the best films I've made. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, so good. Good for him. Well, um, film of the week then. Not that, I take it. No, not that. Not Premonition. I would say, I, I did like, I for, for the, the, the trash lover in me, was completely over the moon with the intruder, um, mm-hmm. with Dennis Quaid, not Randy Quaid. But I gotta say, King Rock. I know we don't normally do documentaries. I t- yeah, that's a good way of doing it. Film of the week is probably the intruder for trashy reasons. But yeah, as a documentary, King Rock. I think people should watch if they can find it in the in the bowels of King Rock of uh, Now TV. Well, for me, I've watched some quite good ones this week actually. Like uh, Deep Impact was surprisingly good. Scanner Cop. Can't be that. Honey Boy was good, and of course, Assault and Priest of Thirteen. I think maybe I'll, I'll singers are all pretty good. I'm going to go with Extro just because it's the one that people are least likely to have seen, and it's so bizarre and so unique. And yeah, so if I was going to watch one of them, it would be that. Well, actually, if I was going to watch one of them, it would be Assault and Priest of Thirteen. But in terms of films that no one's ever heard of, Extro would be the one. I'm going to watch Extra One Assault and Precinct 13. Can yeah. I set you your Arkansas for next time? Oh, yes, you can. And I'm going to make this a specific challenge as well. 
Mm. I want you to get from Sandra Bullock <laughs> to Stuart Lee. <sighs> and I want the listeners to try and get there in fewer steps than you and email the men who talk at outlook.com. You just give me a film actor connecting it to someone who is not a film actor. That's, but he is in a, he is in a film. He is in a film like <laughs> Cameron Rocker. I mean, here's a few people in there. You've got, you know, Frank Skinner, Kevin Eldon, Robin Asquith. What would you want? <laughs> it can be done. I know it can be done. Sandra, fast forward to the next episode and it'll be, oh, Brit, Sandra Bullock was in Confessions of a Driving Instructor with Stuart Lee. <laughs> One snap, boom. <laughs> um, this could be tricky, but yes, okay, no problem, easy, easy peasy. Well, as easy. always, I love you, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Me too. So take care, and until the next time, all my love. <laughs> <laughs>